0: Welcome to the Sex Ed With DB podcast, brought to you by O-School. Sex Ed With DB is an intersectional, feminist, Bay Area based podcast for folks who want to hear real stories from underrepresented voices as we try to revolutionize the way we talk about sex.
1: Just talk about sex every single day. I
0: used to hump the shit out of everything. I think everybody does. I'm like, if you'd like me to start procreating tough shit, because I'm not gonna.
2: You can't have education, you can't have contraception, but you can't have an abortion.
0: We're still on the the shit end of, of the stick for a lot of medical intervention that would make our bodies function better. And now it's all queer and all messy and all bodies and really great and fantastic. Everyone gets a vibrator. I'm DB, AKA Danielle Bezalel, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we'll be discussing culturally responsive sex education, a system where teachers and authority figures acknowledge that their students come from different backgrounds and have different needs. What a concept, right? Our guests today are my dad, Manny Bezalel, and Halen Belay. Manny is one of eight children and was born in Afghanistan. Him and his immediate family moved to Israel when they were forced to leave for being Jewish. Halen is a sex educator in New York City who became passionate about sex ed through social justice activism. Why am I not wet enough down there? What's the difference between a viral and a bacterial STI? What is erectile tissue? Where's the G-spot? These are all questions that are answered by healthcare professionals at O School. O School's pleasure professionals include medical doctors, social workers, therapists, and professors to get you the most accurate and inclusive information you need to have the happiest and healthiest sex life. Check them out at www.o.school. And now, here's my interview with my dad Manny. So, hey, Dad, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing fabulous.
0: Great. Really happy to have you here in SF. It's been quite the weekend. Yes. Yeah, we've had a good time so far. Uh,
2: fantastic.
0: Cool. Um, So your episode is all about culturally responsive sex ed, which we kind of spoke about a little bit earlier when we were having breakfast today. Yes. Um, And we just have like a ton of questions for you since mm-hmm. you're, you know, you weren't born here and you have a really interesting background and you're a goof, so I'm hoping you'll make some goof jokes during our mm-hmm, podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so Ready the, for it. So the first question is, can you say your name um, and tell us a little bit about your background and how you identify?
2: Okay. Um, Menashe Betzalel, that's my Hebrew name. Um, it was very hard to pronounce my name in U- U.S. when I came here about 35 years ago in 1983. So I called myself Manny, but they always, uh, you know, confuse me with Manny. They think that I'm Spanish. Manuel. Manuel. So I'm not a Manuel. I'm Manny (laughs) with E. I always say that. Even that becoming difficult. You know, (laughs) I thought it's going to be easy, but that also. But people get it. So um, I speak three languages. um, Two of them fluently. I hope so. English is one of them. I was born uh, in 1958, and uh, right before 13, I was 12. I moved. We moved to Israel, from? so I grew up in Kabul. So I co- I grew up in Kabul. My parents are from Kabul,
0: which is in Afghanistan. Which is in
2: Afghanistan. By now, everybody knows where Kabul is because the U.S. had a war. We lived in a in kind of like a ghetto, not like a Auschwitz ghetto. You know, like in in. Uh, in the, in the 1940s or 30s, you know, when the Hitler, uh, you know, uh, put all the Jews in one location and uh, he did what he did. But we lived in a ghetto, um, a Jewish, surrounding by Jewish homes, temple, one temple we had. And at the age of about probably six, seven, uh, we went uh, to, uh, uh, to study Hebrew and then we went to uh, a normal school uh, normal meaning that uh, public school. My mom took my hand. I remembered the day. I never forget that. She says, let's go. You are going to school. I don't care. So my mom took me to school. She registered me. And since then, you know, then I went to school uh, at, until like uh, I was 12. Right before I was 12, we moved to Israel. But our curriculum in, in Kabul was very busy because at the I don't remember it was a, in the morning we studied Hebrew and the Torah or we did it in the afternoon. Uh, in, in Afghanistan, um, you study in the summer times. You don't study in the, in the, in the winter times and you have, you have off in summer. Part of the summer you're off because the classrooms are very cold. They didn't have the infrastructure, uh, you know, to warm up the classes. So we went. To, winters, we were off, uh, like probably January, February, we were off. And we used to go to the, uh, you know... Uh, summer homes my father knew uh, you know from his business uh, some of his colleagues or some of his uh, customers so we used to go to warm place it's called Jalalabad people know about that stuff people say oh Jalalabad which is beautiful it was a mountain it it was uh, uh, it's kind of paradise you know and it was a warm place that we used to go for two weeks and that was pretty much our vacation so we didn't go. We didn't go on the planes today. We didn't go from uh, cities to cities. That's the, uh, you know, that's the forest that we went, uh, which about was two two and a half hours. I remember those days very well. Also on Fridays, we used to go to uh, um, a nearby park where the king of Afghanistan had a house there, and uh, the Jews had some privilege to. Uh, access him to be close to him and uh, I'm sure I saw him from distance my father used to go shake his hands and kiss his hand and things like that you know because he really kept the Jews uh, you know um, very uh, safe so uh, by the time in 1971 came he pretty much told all the Jews uh, we were maybe 300 200 families I don't remember Uh, we're talking about a few thousand in Kabul to leave because after 1967 there were a tremendous amount of riots, Muslim riots, you know, against the Jews. Uh, We left by the bus to Iran. Uh, Then we went to, uh, we went to Iran, which is in Tehran. We went to Tehran, and from there, I was uh, around 12 years old, um, close to 13. And, uh, you know, as a religious Jew, or uh, observing Judaism, um, I didn't do bar mitzvah in my time. So we, we delayed that. My father delayed that because you we were you're inter- moving while you are moving during the age. because we were moving and uh, the uh, you know uh, then uh, uh, Israeli immigrant uh, immigration took over our case and uh, they bought us tickets to Tel Aviv and they gave us housing and uh, we ended we end up in Jaffa, which you probably visited in South. You know, Jaffa is uh, was a a metropolitan for Tel Aviv. Now it's part of Tel Aviv, and uh, uh, basically, I grew up in Jaffa and went to Tel Aviv uh, for for high school. So I was kind of like I did eighth grade in Israel. I passed seventh grade. I I missed in between. I think fifth grade I left. Sixth I missed. Sixth uh, I, I I was at the end of the seven eighth grade I was uh, in uh, middle school and they attached special teacher that who taught me Hebrew math and understanding the language and understanding the culture and from there I went to the high school and uh, eventually I become uh, the second best uh, high school uh, student and uh, oh really in, in my high school yeah that's cool I, I just study all day long so if you want to ask me about sex ed <laughs> no clue <laughs> I think we should stop here but math, and move on. We're fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I I was very determined to to be successful. You know, um, the and then you grade, went to
0: I, Tel Aviv University.
2: I went for the army for three years, which is mandatory in Israel, and then after that, I went to Tel Aviv University. And uh, by 1983, uh, which was uh, at the age of uh, 24, I moved to United States.
0: This episode is all about culturally responsive sex education, right? Which is like mm-hmm. about learning students' stories and like learning mm-hmm. where they came from and learning mm-hmm. who they are and who they want to be and what mm-hmm. they want to learn and how to give them the tools and the education to make them successful. Right. Um, so I think like it is important that like we hear stories from people who didn't grow up here, don't have the background, have different Experiences different forms of education, uh, speak different languages, uh, have different access to things, etc. So, you grew up in Afghanistan in like your formative childhood years, mm-hmm. and then in your teenage years, grew up in Israel. Correct. What was the sex ed like? Even if it's zero, what was it like in both of those countries before you came to America?
2: Well, if you take it America, and if you take Israel, and if you take Afghanistan. In a way, it's the same. The outcome of it is the same because they don't talk about it. They don't see any, you know, need for it or they don't want to expose it. Uh, maybe it's a shameful thing. But in Afghanistan, I was a little kid. You know, I, I, everybody has at age 12, 11, you know, some urge and things like that. So you explore that your own way but we never asked my mom and dad, oh, you know what? I I you know, I found this or how do I deal with this? What do you think it is? We didn't do that. Even when you're going all the way in Israel, which is uh, you know, I was more like 13 14, let's say, starting. Even there, you know, I was all boys school, so there's no girls. So In Israel? Uh, yeah. That 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 school, high was school? A, yeah high school yeah oh i didn't know that yeah that's boys important schools. to know yeah that boys' school there are no girls uh you know but it was in tel aviv so uh, you would think that they would give you some understanding about you know puberty and sex ed and things like that no we didn't get that
0: so transitioning a little bit towards like you know, thinking about, like, things that are hard for everybody as a teenager, I would assume, no matter where you grow up, you know, whether it's, like, you know, like, how to have safe sex or if you're, you know, having sex with someone who has a uterus, like, the potential of getting that person pregnant, you know, like, those types of problems that, like, a lot of teenagers grow up with. So do you think if you had an outlet to talk about these things, whether that be in school or, like, at home or with your friends or all of those things— would your life have been easier?
2: You're talking about that I'm already at the second base and third base. I'm not not even on the first base. Right. So you have to understand.
0: Whatever kissing someone, not, asking someone understand. on a date, I whatever. I did not
2: ask for any dates. Right. So how can I even think about? Oh, am I going to impregnate this girl? Right. Or how am I going to do it? Right. Oh, so let's hold get on more a second. Ba- right. How I'm going to feel? I haven't even got a
0: date or, you know what I mean? So So, more basic. How do you even like yourself? How do you even like yourself? Then not like myself. Right, exactly. So I'm saying if you had an opportunity, people talking to you saying you're awesome the way you are, here's how to, you know, have confidence, here's how to ask someone on a date, here's how to be safe about that, whatever. Right.
2: If, I don't know how it would have been. I really don't know. I can't. If you're talking to me about theory, it's one thing, it's about me doing it. It's another thing. Mm-hmm. Did I have a crush on girls? Yes. Did I, I, I think it's a normal, you know? Did I, uh, uh, you know, try to uh, approach somebody and I didn't do it? Yes. I was, you have to understand that I was a foreigner there. I, I, I came from Afghanistan. I mean, they don't know what is Afghanistan is. They thought it's, I in mean, the third four, it is a third world country. But if I would be American or French or Italian, wow. When you don't like yourself, the way you look, it's monumental task. Yeah. How to, you know, even approach a woman. If you don't like yourself, what do you think that other women like you? You know what I mean? Right. Now, (laughs) I like myself.
0: (laughs) Now I'm fucking awesome.
2: I am fucking awesome. Yeah, I think so. Yeah? I can sit down and talk. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I am. I I feel like, you know.
0: But wouldn't it have been awesome if someone, if you had a mentor or a parent or a friend when you were a kid to be like, hey, you're fucking awesome
2: as a kid. I think that, I think one of the things that I ignored was maybe I should have come to my mother. And And asked her. Hey, you know what? Questions. This is how I feel. Yeah. This is what I know. This is what but I. But that do. wasn't the culture I didn't do of
0: communication in yeah. your house. I,
2: I have. I didn't do that at all because I don't. I didn't think that she would be able to help me. Right. You know. Maybe I she don't,
0: didn't have that access. Maybe she didn't.
2: Right. Because
0: maybe her parents didn't say that to her. Not, no. No.
2: Her marriage was uh, arranged. Right. So this is what you do, and that's it. Right. But if I had that. I don't know if at that time would have helped for me to approach a girl that we can have a conversation, you know? No, I had conversations, but not, you know, right. forthright. forthright about, you know, let's right. be a boyfriend like and boyfriend. Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. Let's transition into like you. So you're a dad, right? Of me and Jake and you have two stepkids. So what like kind of relationship do you think you had with me and Jake? talking to us about these kinds of topics, talking to us about liking ourselves and being able to go ask people on dates and feeling good about ourselves and sex education. And what was that like as a parent?
2: Well, I think that you and Jacob, when you became as a part-time, you know, coming to my house, I think um, it was... I don't know if I spoke to you guys about all this. I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if I did, I didn't have any problem to tell you. Because by nature, I'm very open and I'm very, you know, open minded about this stuff. Um, I was, when you grow up and Jake, I was in the middle of the divorce. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that that played a role, you know, whether how, You know, if you ask a question, how you want to to see it. I remember that, you know, you did go out. Like with friends or boys. Yeah, boys. And I always told you, just be safe. Make sure that you do the right thing. And uh, same as for Jacob. I don't know. You have to talk to Jacob about it if I did talk to him.
0: I do remember one time I came to your house, I think I was like 17 or 18, and I was like already had dated my high school boyfriend, Jesse, right. and um, I remember you, there was just one point, I don't know if there was other conversations, there might have been, like sorry if I don't remember them, but I remember one point where you were just like, Dan, do you have sex? Like you just kind of asked me, right. and I was like, uh, yes, and you are like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't really like say anything else, you kind of just like asked to ask. And it was kind of the same thing, like, when I got my period. I feel like I got my period when I was, like, 12. And I feel like you were like, Dan, did you get your period? And I was like, yes. And you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) You just kind of, like, wanted to know where I was at, I think. But I feel like I, like, I don't think I ever, like, lied to you. I feel like I just, like, I was also, like, pretty open. I was just like, yeah.
2: Right. But I always expected mom to play that role. Not because culturally I was, you know, maybe I, I... You know, she's a gynecologist and uh, um, if, let's say, you did not have a mom, probably I would research that and come back to you and say, you know what, that's what you should do and that's how, uh, you know, it's a normal and this and that. But I had a partner, you know, had a partner.
0: Who not only was a woman and like is societally expected, you know, gender roles to kind of like be the person to teach the kids about this kind of stuff. But she had this outside knowledge from being a doctor.
2: Right. So being a doctor and being a, you know, a very progressive woman, you know, in America, you know, being all this. If she would be, let's say, Israeli doctor woman or other Israeli, let's say Afghan, okay? Probably I would take the lead to talk to you about that. But (laughs) she was a progressive woman, very smart. And um, I knew that. She's gonna do a good job, because you didn't never came back to me and ask me a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't ask me questions, but I do ask you. You know what? Are you are you having sex? If you do, you gotta be sure that, you know, uh, you you grew up in the '90s, and by end of '90s, um, the scary part was in the '80s, of course, it was AIDS. So for us, AIDS. I grew up in that. I grew up. I was, at that time, an adult, you know, mm-hmm. and going out with women and things like that. We were very at careful. At that point,
0: you were past first base.
2: Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, but But my concern was that you do not uh, get any sexual transmitted uh, diseases. Not to say, are you having pleasure from it. Are you having this? I have, are you, are you, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about the being a woman? You know,
0: those are all, all good stuff.
2: questions. Yeah. Never ask those questions. No, nobody asks.
0: So what do you think about this concept of culturally responsive sex ed? Um, which means like, you know, reading the room of students, seeing who you have in there and not just putting a blanket curriculum as if it's going to apply to every single kid in the room. Cause it's not right.
2: If you are a teacher, You are in the front of your students. You need to know who your your students are. If you don't know, you you shouldn't be there. Okay, you should not be there because then the whole purpose of what you're teaching is going to be washed. You know, because if they don't understand you and they don't, if you don't understand them, it's like you didn't do anything. So, if you put this in this context of what you said. Because it's a very delicate subject. Because it's not. It doesn't have awareness. Because, in general, even if you're an American, you know, forget about being a foreigner speaking different languages. I think that they need to know. The teacher needs to know the background of each student in order to create a, um, a curriculum that can talk about it. Right. You can't just go and. And talk about, you know, generic, you know, you cannot be generic, you know, that you that you teach uh, sex ed or whatever. The responsibility is more on the teacher. How do teachers get
0: to know their students? How do they make the time? They can't even make the time to grade all their papers.
2: Well, they're teachers, they need to go, um, if you're talking about today, they can find uh, thousands of articles about uh, any cultures and how and what,
0: even if we get beyond the language barrier, right? Say, like magically, everyone in the in the room speaks English. There are a lot of other ways that people can be different. It's
2: not about language; it's about your culture. Okay. It's not a it's not a language thing, because the students from Venezuela uh, that he studied, uh, let's say, in, uh, in the best school in Venezuela, and they he speaks fluently English. When he comes to the United States, he might experience differently. Same as goes for any European cities that is or from Middle East or uh, or from Far East and thing you know it's it it, it, it I think it's go, it's going to be daunting task I don't think it's going to be easy but is it possible to do it yes you can start I think you should start at like early age like in middle cl- in a middle school what needs to be done in school I guess what I'm saying is that you need to um, make this as a curriculum that starts with Teaching them how to respect each other that has nothing to do with sexuality and if they understand that and they accept that, they can move on to the different subjects. You do not have to give up your culture, nor language, nor religious in order to ask questions about your sexuality.
0: How's it going good good I'm so glad to have you for our culturally responsive sex education episode uh, can you tell us uh, your name and a little bit about your background how you identify and uh, why you chose to go into sex education
1: sure um so my name is Halen Halen Belay um uh-huh. And I have been working in sex ed since I was about 15 years old. Um, So it's definitely a passion of mine, something I feel very strongly about and have for quite some time. So I actually started teaching sex ed because I had really terrible sex ed, like most people, but especially like most people in Texas, which is where I went to high school. Um, and my sex ed experience in high school was, i mean it's like embarrassing to even call it sex ed. Right. Um, Texas is an abstinence only state, so I didn't learn anything about how to put on a condom. Um, what I actually learned was that like condoms always break and, um, birth control always fails and you should just never have sex because, um, you'll definitely get an STI and you'll definitely get pregnant and things will definitely be terrible. Unfortunately,
0: Halen's experience in sex ed is far too common in the U.S. Let me share some statistics with you all. Only 24 states and Washington, D.C. actually require that schools teach sex ed. 26 states have laws on the books that require any sex ed that is taught to stress abstinence. What the fuck? In contrast, only 13 states require that schools teach sex ed that is medically accurate, which is all kinds of fucked up. This is despite the fact that it has been shown time and time again that abstinence only does not delay sexual activity in young people. And it's associated with higher rates of risky sexual behaviors,
1: STIs, and teen pregnancy. One of my strongest memories from my high school sex ed class was um, my teacher, who was the football coach. Football coach slash sex ed teacher asked us, um, what does a happy family look like? And I remember kind of looking around to my classmates, like, uh, like smiling, uh, holding hands. I don't know what this question means. It's really vague. And after much, much guessing, he finally was like, oh, "A happy family looks like um, a mother and a father." And oh, no. uh, Yeah, no, I was raised in a single parent household and my best friend who was sitting right next to me, his parents were going through a divorce at that time. And there was also someone in the back of the classroom, um, who had, who was raised by two same sex parents. And I knew other friends at that school who were like, I mean, obviously I don't have to, I don't have to say this. I shouldn't have to say this. There are so many ways to have a family. Um, but that experience in that classroom was really it stayed with me for a really long time, and it's really informed the way that um, that I think as a teacher now. I think, obviously, a big part of my job as a teacher is to give medically accurate information. But it's also to be mindful of, of what it means to be the person with the most authority in the room. Um, Like, you know, when you're a teacher speaking to young people, the things that you say really matter. And so it's not just a matter of giving information that's accurate, but also, you know, what are the other like social and cultural and emotional messages that I'm sending through the way that I'm talking about these topics, whether it's how you make a family or um, living with an STI or I don't know what kind of sex acts people ask questions about in class. Like, my response to that says a lot about how those young people are going to internalize those messages going forward.
0: People have these, like, one or two stories that, like, really speak to them about, like, why they're doing what they're doing. And, you know, not everyone has that, like, one pinpointed kind of experience. But I think it's, like, super relatable and, like, understandable why that sticks in your mind as, like, oh, this is, like, shitty. (laughs) This is shitty. And, like, I don't want other people to feel shitty about this.
1: Well, I remember sitting in that classroom and just thinking, like, not like this can't be right. First of all, this cannot be the correct information, and second of all, this isn't fair. Um, Like, I was really hit with a sense of of injustice about it all. My career in sex education and health promotion actually started from a place of political activism because, at the time, I was a sophomore in high school. I think I was. um, I had just been elected vice president of my high school GSA going into my junior year. Very exciting time in the life of young Halen. Um, And so, and GSA is Gay Gay Straight Alliance. Um, I know that's not necessarily universal terminology, but I was interning for the Texas branch of the National GSA Network. And one of the things that um, we learned about or were talking about as part of our youth activism camp was, you know, not having access to this health information, is a form of oppression and specifically obviously being in Texas we weren't getting good sex ed of any kind especially not queer inclusive sex ed so my work with the Texas GSAN we learned how to basically how to give like guerrilla sex ed lessons um, on certain topics of of sex and sexuality that were queer inclusive and that were more inclusive of like pleasure and also just medically accurate information. And that was where my passion for sex ed first came from, was from this very political place of um, access to health information is a right. And just like other systems of oppression, we see that these what we call negative health outcomes, do fall along uh, race lines, class lines, gender lines, um, lines of orientation and gender identity. And so, you know, uh, to me, those two things are are one and the same. Um, my work as an activist or as someone who's invested in social justice is my work as a sex educator. And so that's why I care a lot about um, doing it intentionally and being really thoughtful about the way that I do it.
0: Also, why you're here is to talk about culturally responsive yes. sex education, which <laughs> yes, is yes, great. Yes. So, like, I came about this term like kind of recently. I was working for two years at a nonprofit at an after-school program with predominantly Um, students of color, um, students who were of low socioeconomic backgrounds, who were low-resourced. And I feel like this kind of came about for me, this idea of culturally responsive sex education, because the students who I was encountering not only, like, were from this, this neighborhood and from these backgrounds, but, like, they were all unique in their own ways and needed their own kind of education and their own programming and their own, you know, like, Um, restorative justice practices. You know, there are all these things that happen. Um, So, like, what does that mean to you? What is culturally responsive sex education to you?
1: Yeah, so... Culturally responsive sex education or health education or just education more broadly, it really comes back to this idea that I kind of touched on when I was talking about the reasons that I became a sex educator. Um, The teacher or the facilitator or whatever title they're taking at the moment that they're facilitating that workshop is the, the person with the most authority in the room, especially when you're working with young people. And so when someone is in that position of being an educator and it's their job to set the tone for the room and also to deliver whatever that specific educational message is that they have, you know, the temptation can just be like, I'm here to teach, whether it's like I'm teaching two plus two versus I'm teaching consent. Um, The temptation is just to be like, well, here's the information and here's my students. And if I mash them together, then ideally they'll get it. Like it'll work. (laughs) job, job accomplished. Um, yeah, which is so, so many kinds of note. Um, it it really comes down to a couple of aspects. One is the content itself. So you might come in thinking, I need to teach these young people about how to put on a condom. Um, but in that conversation, do you also need to get buy-in on the idea that um, condoms are important in the first place? Do you also need to be mindful of of what other sex education that these young people have had before or what other messages they've had about it before? also being mindful of what are the kinds of questions that this particular group of people is going to have. If you're working with low-income communities, you can talk all the live long day about all the different kinds of contraception. But if you're not also providing information about financially accessing those forms of contraception um, or giving really step-by-step instructions for what it would look like, do you have to go to a doctor? Can you go to a clinic? All of those kinds of things in the content are really important. And then the other side of it is, is the delivery and also, the responsiveness in that classroom. So again, when we think about classroom management, especially if we work with young, like very, very young people, sometimes classroom management means like keeping butts in seats on a very functional level. But a lot of time classroom management also means modeling inclusive language and being really mindful of the ways that your students might trigger each other in a conversation about some kind of sexual topic. So, um, you know, in my sex ed experience in high school, I was triggered by a teacher saying something incredibly insensitive about uh, family structures. I was not empowered to say anything in that moment because I'm a student, that's my teacher. Um, and in a lot of school communities, obviously, it varies from school to school and program to program that relationship or that power imbalance makes it really difficult for the young people or the students, whether they're young people or not, to get the information that I, ostensibly they're there to, to receive. And so culturally responsive education means, you know, understanding what is the actual information those young people need and also how do they need to hear it and what are the things they might hear in that conversation that could trigger them um, and cause them to not receive anything because they've just shut down completely.
0: Right. Absolutely. Can you get a little bit more specific and like in your classroom, like when you're teaching sex ed to students, like what are some examples of how you model culturally
1: responsive sex ed? What I don't want to say is go into classrooms using a bunch of slang that you looked up on Urban Dictionary and only halfway understand because students will see through that from a mile away. But definitely being aware of what language your students are using, whether that's slang, whether that's uh, languages other than English, but literally what are the words that they use to refer to whatever the concepts are that you're discussing in a classroom. So um, in my case, when I'm teaching about anatomy, What I tell my students at the beginning of any anatomy lesson, and usually we go over it at the beginning of the year, is in my classroom, as much as we can, we want to practice using the language a doctor would use. And the reason for that is, obviously, it's it's a sex ed class. Ed is right in there. I want them to learn um, the anatomical names for different body parts. But the rule that we have is, if you don't know how to say it the way a doctor would say it, um, you can say it once to ask, like the way that you know how to say it, say it once to ask, what's the way for me to say this, the way a doctor would say it, just giving them the opportunity to use the language that they're familiar with, whether it's slang that I also know that they're just uh, not used to saying in classroom because it's considered vulgar. Right. Um, or it could be slang that I've never heard before, and that their classmates might have to kind of crowdsource: well, this is the word that we know, this is what we think it describes. How can we figure out together how a doctor might say this? And that goes such a long way to making sure that one, my students know um, exactly what it is that they're learning. I'm not I'm not losing them because I'm using language that is totally foreign to them. And two, shows them that, you know, in my classroom that's a context where maybe we'd use certain kinds of language, but in general, that I care what kind of language they use. I'm not going to be upset with them for using the language that is familiar to them in my classroom if it's in the service of trying to learn how to say say things, quote unquote, the way a doctor would say it. Um, So that's one really, really simple example that can also go a long way for showing me what I need to, again, on the content level, be bringing into the classroom. Um, So there have been times where, let's say we're talking about sexual slang and I'm asking them, um, you know what are the what are the terms that people use when they're talking about specific sex acts, or when they're talking about um, I think the most famous example is like hooking up. Hooking up can mean anything from making out to anal sex, depending on who you ask. And so those are also really good teachable moments for me as the educator to say, okay, well, now that I'm receiving this information about not only how they talk about things, but what exactly they're they're talking about, that shows me maybe where I can go with my, my lesson planning and my curriculum. You know, part of being a culturally responsive educator is recognizing that especially if you're working in certain populations, you are inevitably working with young people who have been been traumatized or experienced trauma. That's what it means to grow up low income. That's what it means to grow up a person of color in certain certain communities. That's what it means to grow up a woman. That's what it means to grow up trans or gender non-conforming. In a lot of places, it means that necessarily you have experienced more trauma or traumatic events. You know, if your family if you come from a family of immigrants, if you are disabled, I could go on and on and on of all these different intersections of identity that by definition, mean that you have experienced things that might come up in a way that's challenging in a classroom like that. And that's why the term safe spaces came to exist in the first place is because that experience of being triggered into um, a traumatic memory or coming into a place of, of um, you know, extreme distress because of something that's said in a classroom, you can't learn at that point. It's impossible to learn something if you are, so distressed in that moment that you're experiencing a flashback or even just you're experiencing that knot in your stomach that makes you feel disassociated from the people around you. Um, you know, that's when you see people putting their heads down and just tapping out for the rest of class. And that's like the last thing that I want to see as an educator, both because it's, it's heartbreaking, but also because it means I'm not able to do my job.
0: Totally. Yeah. Thank you for saying that about like different kinds of identities that like statistically speaking, like have experienced more trauma than other identities. I think that's really, really important to say. So I'm glad that you said it. Moving on in our questions, I'm wondering, in your opinion, if there are certain cultural norms in some countries and or states and cities um, that make it particularly challenging to reach certain students or sex ed learners. And what would those like cultural norms and those boundaries be in your experience?
1: Generally, generally speaking, um, some of the things that I run into most frequently, and it can come from different cultures or backgrounds, but generally speaking, in America, I would say there is a lot of hesitation towards just talking about sex, period. Um, That a lot of people, regardless of background, you know, it might, they might say it's because of their background, but people from so many different backgrounds will say, you know, we don't talk about this in my household. It's considered something that is just not done. Um, for some cultures, that's more so on the side of like, we just don't talk about sex as a physical act in other cultures that might be, we don't talk about sex, um, in terms of like sexual identity or gender identity. It's just not a com- table of conversation. Um, but generally speaking, I've had very few students, not, not zero, um, usually at least a couple students every year. But very few students will raise their hands and say, like, I have a really um, healthy relationship (laughs) with talking about sex with my parents and it's really chill and they don't freak out if I ask certain kinds of questions. I'm sure it's very, very
0: rare. (laughs)
1: Yes. Um although I will say the the students who have who do have that experience, unsurprisingly, those tend to be the students who when I ask questions about the medical information are most likely to have that medical information. I've heard people say like Oh, it doesn't matter because they can just they can go online and like see all the information. Like you can Google how to put on a condom. You don't need someone to to tell you if your parents won't tell you. Uh, but that's that's just not true. If you've heard your whole life that it's dirty and bad and you shouldn't talk about it, um, you're also not very likely to feel comfortable seeking out that information on your own. And if you are, you're more likely to stumble into the places where unfortunately you're getting inaccurate information that is coming from a place of repression um, or discomfort with the topic. So that is one really big one, just getting folks to be comfortable with the idea that it is something that can be talked about out loud. Oftentimes, I have to kind of lead my students in all together playing, you, you know, the penis game, right? Oh, of
0: course. <laughs> just the most loud, yeah. the loudest penis person saying exactly. the loudest.
1: Because um, otherwise, like I can't have an anatomy lesson where my students are saying ling or like <laughs> the the thingy or their stuff, quote-unquote, right. um, that's not getting us anywhere. So just to break through the idea that, no, you are allowed to say the word penis out loud, and in fact, you have to say the word penis out loud, right. otherwise I don't know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, that's one really big one. And then I would say another sort of big one that falls into the same sort of category is there are certain topics where I think young people, again, have absorbed a lot from the people around them around certain lightning rod issues like uh, trans people, like abortion, Um, you know, these topics that I think it talked about in such a heightened way that young people, again, will just repeat the things that they've heard people around them saying, even if they don't totally understand what it is that they're talking about.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you brought up abortion. Like one of the questions I have in here for you is, did you ever learn about abortion? I mean, in an abstinence only state where, you know, no education was happening about that, like what kinds of myths, like, did you learn that were intended to scare you about sex or abortion?
1: Funnily enough, the only thing I remember learning about abortion was that um, I did learn, quote unquote, that abortion abortion decreases fertility later in life, um, which was not very helpful one way or the other because there just wasn't very much information about even what an abortion entailed or what it, where where somebody might get one or how somebody would get one. Um, it was sort of much like the condom conversation and the birth control conversation. A lot of the abstinence-only education that I received was devoted towards telling me that every, every um, medical device or tool that existed didn't work. Or was somehow faulty. Um, and the same extended to abortion, that like it just wasn't it was not I mean, that it was effective at aborting a pregnancy, but that it was not effective at maintaining someone's health, um, or that it might kill somebody. And it was all oh, very dramatic. Yeah. I mean, it's not surprising that abstinence-only states have much higher rates, on average, of unintended pregnancies um, and STI transmission, because if you go into a classroom and tell a bunch of teenagers that condoms always break or that birth control doesn't work, um, they're not going to not have sex, they're just going to not use condoms or birth control, because why would they waste their time if it doesn't work?
0: Despite what shame-filled abstinence-only programs might teach, birth control actually does work. When properly used, condoms are 85% effective, a diaphragm is 88% effective, the birth control pill or patch is 91% effective, and the birth control shot is 94% effective, compared to the birth control implant and the IUD, which are 99% effective. In contrast, withdrawal, or the pullout method, is only 78% effective and doesn't protect against
1: STIs. If someone does not feel like the information they're receiving is relevant to them, or if they don't feel like the classroom where they're learning it is safe for them, they're not going to learn any of the medical stuff. It's almost pointless to be in the room. Um, If you're not also teaching them, you know, first of all, in a space that feels comfortable, and then secondly, teaching them how to, like, actually use this in real life. I can teach someone the definition of sexual assault, but if I don't teach them sexual communication and, like, how to actually talk about sex... I haven't done that much for them except for educate them on, like, the laws and bylaws of these legal systems or legal definitions. You know, I can show somebody how to put a condom on, but if I don't talk to them about what to do if their partner refuses to wear a condom, how much have I helped them? Sex Ed with DB is
0: brought to you by O-School. A place to unlearn shame, explore pleasure, and interact with a diverse community of sex-positive folks through daily live streams. Forget sex ed, our hashtag SexyEd is far more satisfying. Go to www.odotschool to learn more. Our creator, host, and producer is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our content editor is Katherine Cohen. Our graphic illustrator is Carissa Diaz. Our audio engineer is Katie McMurrin. Our social media lead is Lisa Fireman, and our fundraising coordinator is Carly Yoshida. Music by Joaquin Karud and the artist Buddha. Thank you to our featured voices and our listeners. Tune in next time.